Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Cody Keenan, presidential speechwriter and author of the new book, Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Uh, Cody, welcome to Bookstack. Hi, Richard. Nice to be with you. Uh, So congratulations on the book. And what were the 10 days? Thank you. Yeah, I, I didn't leave the Obama administration thinking about writing a book until this story kind of presented itself in my head. It's uh, the, the book takes place over just 10 days in June of 2015. And they were bookended by a white supremacist act of terror in a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And 10 days later, Obama's eulogy for the pastor of that church in Charleston, where he sang Amazing Grace. And in between, you had all sorts of extraordinary events. You had you know, in response to the killing, you had our, our umpteenth debates on, on race and the Confederate flag, but you actually started to see some Republican governors bring it down of Republic spaces in the South. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court was poised to rule on Obamacare and marriage equality. Basically, they were going to determine whether or not America guaranteed health insurance to tens of millions of people and whether or not um, gay people had a right to get married like the rest of us, or if they were going to be deemed second-class citizens somehow. So all these kind of questions about American identity and who we are and what we believe in came to the fore all at the same time in ways we weren't anticipating. And we grappled with it in real time, just like anybody else. And obviously, I had to write a bunch of speeches for the president over those 10 days, um, I think 10 total. And, you know, even then, you're not, you're not going through these 10 days being like, okay, today is day six. You know, you're just doing your job. Um, they only kind of came together for me in retrospect, and then they came into very clear view um, in the years following the Obama administration. And as, as you say, these are seismic events in the life of the nation and in, in the administration, but, but they also do provide a fascinating insight into your job. You start the book by talking about the commemoration of Selma in March 1965, which in some ways acts as a, as a framing device for what comes next. That's right. The The Selma speech was three months prior, but I made it the prologue of my book. Um, and I, I borrowed the thesis for my book from the Selma speech, which Obama added. And this was a speech for people who aren't familiar. He was scheduled to go speak on the 50th anniversary of the marches from Selma to Montgomery. Um, those were in 1965. And a group of mostly, mostly young, mostly black people set out to march from a church, AME church in Selma, Alabama, to the state capital of Montgomery to demand the right to vote. Um, you know, which they already had as Americans, but were, were expressly barred from using. And they didn't even make it a mile out of town before they were attacked by uh, state police. And, you know, John Lewis, who ended up becoming a congressman, um, his skull was cracked open and he thought he was going to die. And so the president was going to go back and pay tribute to them 50 years later. But with Barack Obama, it was never enough just to give a speech paying tribute to something. He wanted to tell all of us as a captive audience of Americans what our obligations are. Um, what we're supposed to be doing to carry on for these marchers. And one of the things he added to that speech was that Selma was not a clash of armies, but a clash of wills. It was a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And I always thought that could apply to our politics too. And it certainly applied to those 10 days and the seven years after. 
And, you know, one of the things that I think for readers that you really get from these 10 days is that sense of what it's actually like to be in the Oval Office. And early on in the book, you talk about the first time you go into the office, your mouth goes dry. Uh, you think you're ready for it because you've seen it on the West Wing and uh, TV dramas and so on. But but the gravitas of it, you say, squeezes the air from your lungs quality of light is different, sharper somehow, like you just walked onto live television. Uh, if your self-importance swells while uh, walking up the White House driveway, the Oval Office punctures it right away. It's a, it's a brilliant description of, of what it's like to be in that famous room where it happens. All that is true. Eventually you get used to it, but, but the first few times are uh, you have to remind yourself that you're not walking into history. This isn't a museum. You are you are live and you are working. Um, and eventually, over time, I got more comfortable with. But you do say that that in some ways, being I think your exact words are that being a speechwriter for Barack Obama is terrifying. That uh, there's a phrase that you use that sometimes you feel like a dancer frozen in mid leap. So, you know, although the room stops intimidating you, uh, working for him is something that uh, that perhaps doesn't ever really stop uh, in that process of intimidation. That's very true, and that's mostly because he was a writer. Um, a great writer and a, a deep thinker. And so we would always, as speechwriters, kill ourselves to get a draft to him that we thought met his standards, something he could work with. Uh, that was always intimidating, especially when it dealt with thorny topics like um, race and, and uh, racial violence, like the Charleston eulogy did. And did, I mean, did he think of himself as being in that tradition? I mean, there, there is a, a, a literary tradition with, with presidents, Jefferson, Grant, Theodore Roosevelt, and so on. Obviously, he'd uh, written a very successful book before he was even in politics. Is that something that he, he thought of himself when he was in the Oval Office as a writer as well as a, a, as well as a politician and commander-in-chief? I don't know if he actively thought of himself as one. I think he just knew he was one. Um, I don't think he, you know, he, when he wrote Dreams for My Father, he was in his 30s. And, you know, nobody knew who he was. The book wasn't even that big a success until he gave a speech in 2004 that made him a global megastar overnight at the Democratic National Convention. Then suddenly they, they, printed, they reprinted more of the book and it started doing really well. Um, that shows you the power of a good speech. But he... He knew he's a good writer. He, to this, I just saw him last week, and to this day, he reminds me he wrote the 04 speech by himself, uh, as if I didn't know. But he viewed he viewed it as a, as a serious responsibility, you know, not just because a president's words can move markets or armies, but they matter. They can move people. Uh, they can inspire people to a cause. They can inspire hatred and violence. And he so he was very careful with his words, and he would dive into every speech. He would not just edit what we did, but he would often get out a yellow legal pad and add to it, like he did with the Charleston eulogy that week. He was one of the, the few times he just crossed out two entire pages of what I gave him and rewrote them himself. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a fascinating moment in the book. I mean, you you talk about getting those handwritten yellow legal pads that that sense that, yes, you're working together on something that's a presidential priority. But on the other hand, you say that, you know, you felt that you'd failed. But but he recognizes that and says, and says, you know, this is not about failure. We're, we're collaborators that you'd put in the scaffolding that had enabled him to to build those few pages for the speech. 
that was very generous of him uh, because I didn't feel that way in the moment. You know, it, it's we were collaborators and our, our best speeches were collaborations when we had the time. You know, the, the Selma speech, for example, which I would encourage everyone to read if you want to learn a little something about what he really thinks of America and, and his vision of it and a truer story of American history. He and I got to pass five drafts back and forth one day because it snowed in Washington. So the federal government shut down just to keep a couple hundred thousand people off the roads. And I went to work because I knew all of his meetings would be pulled down. And so we got to just sit and work on a speech together all day, which was so rare um, just because he had so much to do. But you don't always nail a draft. Uh, there, was the, there were certainly times with other speeches where he'd be really happy with the first draft. Um, but there are other times where it just doesn't quite hit the mark or he has other ideas or just as he would put it the muse hits and he's inspired by something and he'll sit down and do a lot of writing and it's it's difficult to um receive feedback from him on that when you feel like you didn't do your job and that's what it felt like in that moment but but as you said he was gracious enough to remind me that we're collaborators and i gave him something to go on and and sometimes there just isn't time that that you you had a lot of time with the eulogy, but with the initial TV address, there's this uh, brilliant scene where you describe uh, uh, President Obama standing over you, other staffers in the room. He's dictating his edits to your draft. That uh, it reminded me of that you know famous address that that Kennedy made in 1963, where Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, was passing pages literally to him under the resolute desk. While while Kennedy was on air, so so sometimes you have time. At other times, you just you just have to do the best that you can in the moment. I actually like it better when there's not enough time, uh, because then you sort of get out of your own head. You you can't. There's no time to think. You just do. And unfortunately, that was usually when something bad happened in the world, and he had to speak pretty quickly. But time was often my enemy in that you know. He didn't, he actually, we didn't know for certain if he was going to give a eulogy in Charleston. He didn't want to for most of the week, and I didn't want to write one. And he finally decided to do it on the sixth day of those 10 days. So I had five days to write a eulogy, really four, um, which is still a lot of time in general compared to all the other speeches we had to write. But but it, it just feels like an eternity, and it's often the enemy in that if I have a bunch of time, uh, that gives me too much time to think. I really need a deadline to do my best work. And it's, it's one of the constant refrains of the book, the fear of the blank page. I, I love the advice that you say that uh, Barack Obama gave you when you when you took the job. Read James Baldwin when you're stuck. Listen to John Coltrane when you're not. Um, is that something that you uh, that you followed? You seem to have uh, certainly picked up a, a pleasure in listening to, to Coltrane, that's for sure. Yeah, I did that week. Uh, I read a lot of Baldwin that week. You know, the difference between the two was when I, I wasn't well steeped in jazz. And when I started listening to Coltrane, it's, it's electric, you know, he would do free jazz and just kind of be all over the place. And sometimes it would help me write faster. It would almost, it would almost help me kind of free write, I guess. Uh, it, it almost made me feel like I knew what I was doing. Baldwin's different. Baldwin, you have to commit to. And his, his writing was searing as to what is right and what is wrong. It's like, a, in the, and I write in the book, it was like a hot knife through butter. And that was helpful um, when you get bogged down in, you know, writing something like this, but that, but this, but that, you know, Baldwin reminds you to write what's true. 
Yeah, that was that was the phrase exactly that that stood out to me that that it was a reminder to write what was true. That you know, it, which in some ways seems like obvious advice for a writer, but you know, as you say in other parts of the book, you're co- sometimes you're constantly having to balance all of these different concerns. You're having people uh, emailing um, their their own kind of priorities, uh, your own partner who also works as, as kind of part of the uh, the unit as a fact checker is is often emailing you saying yeah where did that quote come from is that fact true uh, and so on so you know you have all these kind of different people uh, with their different concerns that advice about writing what's true must sometimes be incredibly hard to uh, fulfill it is yeah you know people think speech writing is just the speech writer and the boss but as you said there are all sorts of different people who try to get their own points of view in there who uh, like my wife who tell you this is wrong, you have to fix it. It's a real challenge um, with speeches like Charleston where it's more intimate and where I struggle. I wouldn't get people a draft until as late as I possibly could to try to minimize those interruptions. Um, and I'm sure they were not pleased with me for that. There's a, the other thing that struck me in reading the book uh, is that that Barack Obama has a, a certain hardness about him that uh, when it comes to these speeches that you know belies what I think uh, he calls or you say he calls the kind of hopey feely stuff. Um, you know that he thought that yes we can was a bit corny. He dislikes it once it's in office. He doesn't like stuff that's that's too referential. That there's there's definitely in the relationship that you have with him kind of somebody who when he's not happy he's gonna he's gonna make sure that he tells you that he's not happy uh, sometimes sometimes in pretty he's got quite the mouth on him at uh, okay on occasions <laughs> yeah people people often ask me what's he really like and he's he's just like you'd expect what you see is what you get he's you know he's just a little more uh profane when the cameras are off um that might be overturking a little, but he wasn't, he's not sentimental. You know, he, he's not somebody who needs validation or people around him at all times. He's perfectly comfortable in his own skin and being alone, uh, which I always, which are traits that I think are important to a writer. You got your uh, you got your education writing for uh, Senator Edward Kennedy. Um, I-, I wonder, did you did you ever come into contact with Ted Sorensen, JFK's great speechwriter? You do make the point that sometimes only speechwriters understand other speechwriters. Who who are the ones that you admire, and is Sorensen one of them? Absolutely, I got to work with him a little bit on the first campaign, which was uh, extraordinary. It's not something you ever expect will happen. I, I met him a couple times um, in Chicago during the campaign, and he was going to write a, an op-ed in support of um, Senator Obama and, and basically compare him favorably to JFK in the Des Moines Register. But at that point, he couldn't really see anymore. He was mostly blind. Um, so he dictated the op-ed to me over the phone in a way that I still don't think I could do. He He just stream of consciousness read this read this op-ed out loud from his own mind and then once i finished typing it he actually went back and edited himself he said go back three paragraphs and and change that line and it was it was amazing to do over the phone and you know i i I often wonder is is there a a kind of club that goes beyond politics for speech writers as a writer and for the craft presumably you can admire somebody like Ted Sorensen and somebody like Peggy Noonan, even though they come from different political traditions. 
I, yeah, I assume so. I think that's true for, um, you know, almost anybody in politics. You can admire, you know, elected officials from the other side of the aisle. Um, as far as speech writing, you know, speech writers are generally swept up into their boss and their boss's beliefs um, and what their boss wants to say. So it's not always easy, but but sure, there's, I think there's 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 at least uh, a respect for what we've all had to go through. <laughs> And very often it seems to be a young person's game that you and John Favreau, your fellow speechwriter in the Obama administration, were in your 20s when you started out. You know, why is that, do you think? And, and how do you combine that with uh, family life? As you say, your wife, uh, Kristen, was in the fact checker's office. I mean, how, how do you combine that sense of having a family, but also being totally committed to the job? It's really difficult. I mean, there were people with young children in the White House, and I don't know how they did it. I, we didn't have children in the White House. We have a, an almost two-year-old daughter now, um, and I couldn't imagine being away from her for the hours we had to be. That's why it's such a young person's game. And, and so many of us joined the campaign when we were so young. I joined at 26, um, and you work you know, 14-hour days, seven days a week, and firm up into this kind of family unit of your own. In the White House, my deputy director of speechwriting, Terry Zuplat, had two young children, and um, he just modeled his behavior after President Obama's. He was out of the office every day at 6.30 to go have dinner with his kids, and then he'd log back on once they went to bed and, and keep working. Yeah, and I mean, do we, do we see that with you, too, that at, at one stage when you're working on the draft of the eulogy that uh, the president calls you at home at 9 o'clock after a day when you've been in the office since, I think, 6.30, uh, and says, can you come by the residence at 10? I'm going to walk you through uh, walk you through my edit. So it, it it really kind of drives home this sense of almost of a of a mission or a vocation uh, in what you're in what you're doing, and also maybe explains why you can only do it for a certain amount of time. Yeah, it it people typically burn out after a couple of years. I stayed for all eight, um, as did a lot of my team, and I yeah I think I, I remember reading somewhere that we had more people who remained for all eight years than any other administration, and I think a lot of that is just because we formed those bonds early in the campaign. Um, and we were, we just, we wanted to see it through to the end and we had each other's backs and we really were a family unit. I mean, you know, I lived with two of my colleagues and then, uh, ultimately Kristen moved in with us. So, you know, my, my girlfriend, then fiance, then wife, uh, was our roommate. And we just, we were, and we still are a family. I was actually just at an Obama wedding over the weekend where, uh, dozens of us were there. And so we, we all kept each other going through eight years of the white house. So let's talk about the, uh, the the speech, the eulogy, and of course that incredible moment. Um, in fact, you know, you in the the book you describe how you emailed Ben Rhodes and a couple of other uh, White House staffers to say that President Obama might actually sing "Amazing Grace." Um, how did that come about? What was it like in the hall? And of course, you know, you don't actually know until the moment whether it's something that he's going to do. Yeah, he, uh, he'd he added the lyrics to Amazing Grace to the eulogy the night before, which is one of those things I kicked myself for not thinking of. You know, I'd, I'd actually, I'd written the phrase Amazing Grace into the draft and didn't take the extra step of writing the actual lyrics in. Um, and he kind of brilliantly built a, a structure in the speech around them. And that morning, uh, this is the, the 10th day of the book, that Friday morning, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of marriage equality, This decided that Americans have a right to marriage equality. So you see these 
you know, not just euphoric, joyous scenes on the steps of the Supreme Court, but but within the White House, because we had a whole bunch of LGBT colleagues who uh, they weren't the only ones who were happy. We were happy for them that that you know their love was was equal to ours. My wife and I just got engaged, and, and the very fact that our friends and colleagues would be able to get married too made our made our impending marriage feel fuller and truer. And so the president spoke on that in the morning about this amazing thunderbolt of progress uh, in the broader sweep of America. And then we boarded a helicopter five minutes later to fly to Andrews Air Force Base to get on Air Force One and fly to Charleston. And as just as he was about to get off the helicopter, he looked at me and said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. Um, and that hadn't occurred to me either. So I just looked at him. And I was like, you do you, man. Uh, I trusted him to to make that decision and go for it. And when you're watching, you know, you, you know, it's going to be a black church service, which first of all, is an extraordinary thing to be on national television. It, I don't think it was something that most of the country had ever seen before. Um, you know, ladies wearing their Sunday best, people, people interrupt when they're moved with the spirit, you know, people chant amen and, and preach in the middle of a eulogy. Uh, even the organist started playing in the middle of President Obama's eulogy, not even at the singing part. So I, I, I knew he'd sing, even though I think only five of us on the planet heard what he had said. Um, and he just sort of, he spent about 11 seconds, I think, collecting himself before he kind of surprised the world by launching into song. And it must be, it must be an amazing moment for you as well, when you've written or collaborated on a speech like that, something that you know is going to have resonance, not just in the United States, but is going to go around the world. Um, that, that must give you a, a sense of professional um, pride in, in the job that you've done. It does, but you know, again, he's he's a huge part of that. He, the fact that he stepped in and took the speech to a higher place, uh, I'm sure is something he's proud of. And so, you know, my they were always team efforts. My speechwriting team helped with every draft. He helped with every draft, uh, and I was always very proud of what we were able to accomplish together. And is that part of your success, actually, that, you know, one of the key things to a, to a good speechwriter is that you understand that it's all about the principle. It's all about the person in office um, and that, you know, you have to have a, a certain kind of professional modesty uh, about these kind of things, even when people are slapping you on the back and saying, what a fantastic job you've done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, it has the benefit of being true. Um, if, if so you, just, never, you just did it again there. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, if he had never edited a single draft, if he had never done a shred of work, then sure, you could go ahead and call me a, a great speechwriter. But he did. And uh, it's, it's documented. They'll all, it'll, they'll all be out in the National Archives. You'll be able to look up and pull digital copies of what he did to his speeches, and people will see the truth. That's why I, I you know, part of part of being humble about it is also you don't want to get busted in a lie later on. Um, but you know, speechwriters, I've always had a, 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 a conflict here because speechwriters are, we're not supposed to be seen or heard, we're not supposed to exist. And, um, you know, back in the, in the days of FDR, there was actually a, a federal commission he created to come up with a public civil service. And it was called the Brownlow Committee. And part of it was that people who enter government service should have a passion for anonymity. So I always feel a little guilty that, you know, to do an interview like this or to write a book like the one I've written. The truth is we just, we, we live in times where there is no such thing as anonymity. I, I was outed early as a speechwriter behind a speech because Robert Gibbs, the press secretary, told the press corps. Um, and it, it was actually kind of jarring. This was in 2011. And it was jarring to lose that anonymity because suddenly you have reporters not just calling me, but calling my parents, calling my sister. Uh, and it was a little frightening. 
But, you know, we just live in an era where the, the, the press corps is hungry for any morsel about anything. So they always knew who we were. Once we left the White House, you know, we got on social media. Um, so it, this is all a long-winded way of saying, yes, I feel a little sheepish um, at not being anonymous when it's when it's our job. But but the other great thing about it, the one thing that makes you feel better is that he really, really did. He was our chief speechwriter. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, contemporary politics. You got on well with Vinay Reddy, um, President Biden's speechwriter. Um, how, how do you think he's doing as White House Director of Speechwriting? I think he's doing the best job he can, uh, which is which is pretty good. It's they, you know, believe it or not, they have been thrown into worse circumstances than we were. And when we took office, when President Obama took office, the economy was losing eight hundred thousand jobs a month. You know, the global economy is in flames. They took office in the middle of a pandemic where most of them couldn't even go to work with each other. Um, most of them had to work remotely for most of the administration. You don't really get to build a team or a camaraderie that way. And you know, you also you've also taken office just after. Um, a bunch of people stormed the United States Capitol in an act of political violence. And, you know, you had an, an ex-president egging them on. And it's just, we didn't have to deal with the severity of the situations that they did. So it is hard to break through when you're putting out a whole bunch of different fires at once. I remember it well. But Vinay is just a good soul and one of those people who you feel fortunate to meet and know. And I mean, the, there must be a, a, a difference of style, as you say. Pre President Obama was a writer. Um, uh, President Biden is a different kind of politician. Um, yeah, how how do you work with a with a politician like that, with different with a different skill set, and still manage to get the the message across? Because I think one of the perhaps one of the criticisms of the Biden administration is that you know maybe they haven't communicated uh, their success in a way that would would be as effective as perhaps people might have expected? You know, I think they have. It's always, it's always the easiest criticism. And trust me, this comes from presidents too. I've heard it plenty of times uh, that communicating is the problem. The communications team is the problem. You know, if people just knew how great we were, uh, they, would, they would feel better about us. It's just difficult to move the needle these days in general, not only because of... Um, you know, the polarization is the easy villain, but people create their own news silos where you can go an entire week without hearing a dissenting viewpoint. So it's very difficult. And there's just the right wing in particular, you know, that watches Fox News and, and whatnot, they are just fed disinformation all day long. And why would they believe anything they hear coming out of the Biden White House? So that's, that's not something you can put on a speechwriter. There is no secret code to forcing the country, the part of the country that doesn't listen to you to change their minds. It's also been very difficult to communicate during a pandemic. They're just you know, only recently, um, only the past year or so has Vice President Biden been able to get out and travel and give big speeches. And, you know, when, when you're, I always, I always really disliked writing speeches to be given in the White House, to be delivered in the East Room or somewhere, because there's something about coming to the White House where, you know, you, you have to dress up and you're a little more uncomfortable and you're not sure if you're allowed to stand up and applaud or make noise. And it's almost like you're sitting in a museum. Whereas if you can get out in the country with people, you know, you've got a more relaxed, captive audience that's, that's ready and eager to cheer you on. Um, and it's just a much different, it's a different time than it was when we took office. And it's a different country than we took office ever since the insurrection.
Yeah, and it's 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 five years now since uh, since President Obama uh, left office in January 2017. Um, where where do you think that uh, his historical legacy is going to lie? No, oh, I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole. I, I feel good about it. <clears throat> I'm not going to pick a number. I what I think is interesting about what I think is interesting about legacy is and there's all sorts of policies you can always point to, but with him it's the intangibles too, and. I, I teach speechwriting now at Northwestern University. I actually just had my first day of class yesterday, and these <laughs> students were eight. These students were eight years old when President Obama was elected. You've got an entire generation that grew up not thinking it strange that there was a black first family. They saw them on TV every day. On you know, the uh, there aren't really many newsstands anymore, but you know what I mean. And who also conducted themselves beyond reproach. So they grow up thinking it's normal. They grow up seeing that it's possible. And I think his legacy is going to be, much like JFK's was, what young people go on to do who came of age during that time. You know, after the Kennedy administration, you saw a whole burst of um, people going into public service, people going into service abroad. And now I think we're just starting to see a burst of people running for office who, quote unquote, aren't supposed to run for office. You know, the, the, Michelle Obama gave a beautiful speech at the White House a couple of weeks ago during the portrait unveiling where she talked about how someone like her wasn't supposed to be there. And who decides what supposed to means? You know, this is America you, where anyone's supposed to be able to do whatever they want. And of course, that hasn't always been true. Part of the American journey is making that true. But I think you're just starting to see waves of people running for office who, quote unquote, aren't supposed to. And I think it's going to change this country in hopefully incredible ways. And finally, Cody, I mean, you mentioned uh, teaching there, but but what's next for you? Is this is is politics something that uh, you're pretty much done with, or is this something that uh, you'll be coming back to? I'm not sure. I don't I don't have a plan. You know, I, I've been wanting to tell this story, Grace, for a couple of years. I love teaching. It brings me so much joy to to send you know little armies of speechwriters out into the world each year. <laughs> and to watch what they go do. Um, and then I also have a speechwriting firm called Fenway where we do work with candidates. Um, there were a bunch of former Obama administration speechwriters and, and several others. And um, would I go back in? Absolutely. Uh, I think f for the for the right person and the right reasons, it's it's more difficult as we talked earlier now that I'm older and have a, have a baby girl. Um, but it doesn't need to be, it wouldn't need to be a person who's necessarily charismatic and inspiring. And I think we need to realize that we're not always going to have charismatic and inspiring leaders and you have to vote and work and fight anyway. Um, it'd be more for me if I could find the same group of people that I had in the Obama White House to surround myself with and work with, because that's really what made the job worthwhile. So the book is Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. It's written by my guest, Cody Keenan, and published by Mariner Books. Uh, but for now, Cody, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks, Richard. I really appreciate being on. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying... Thanks for listening. <laughs>